If you've ever studied psychology, then you've probably heard of Peggy Guggenheim. Peggy was a rich socialite that came from a wealthy family who lived in New York at the turn of the 20th century. When Peggy was 13 years old, her father Benjamin Guggenheim died when he went down with the Titanic in 1912. And shortly after, Peggy inherited $2.5 million and moved to Venice, Italy, the city of love. Now the irony in this fact should not escape us, mostly because Peggy is remembered for two things. One, she aggressively pursued and acquired a huge collection of modern art, which is now the collection of the Modern Art Museum in Venice. And second, Peggy, Peggy aggressively pursued a promiscuous sexual lifestyle. Which, if you're wondering how a woman becomes famous for having random sex with men, well, it certainly helps when you're rich, you live in the 1920s, and you make no effort to conceal it. Because of her promiscuity, um, she was ostracized by the American culture. Today, however, she's regarded by many as a pioneer of sexual liberation. Um, and it's mostly for two reasons. Peggy believed that sex should be viewed through the lens of being an art form. And she also exposed the double standard of our culture towards men and women who indulge in promiscuous sexual behavior. Peggy was called every hurtful name and slang in the book by those with haughty eyes. Even now, she studied as someone who made no effort to treat her mental health condition and unhealthy sexual appetite, which is where she comes in in the psychology world. Whether you agree with Peggy's lifestyle or not, the way she was treated because of her lifestyle brings up a great question. Why in our culture does promiscuous sex seem to be considered shameful and disgusting with women, yet is admirable with men? When I was going through puberty, I often daydreamed of what it must be like to be Hugh Hefner living in the Playboy Mansion. Why is one shamed and the other is encouraged? And why, when young girls get pregnant, do they get the scarlet letter, but men get a high five? We should really be careful not to begin believing that the problem lies with the generation of teenagers today. Mostly because we should recognize that the future generations are all the products of the current one, or the ones previous. In other words, if your kids are messed up, who made them that way? The sexual double standard of our culture is what helped lead to the free love and women's rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s. This was a movement that promoted many sexual partners with little to no commitment necessary. It's where we get the idea that sex is purely physical, not emotional. Which is ironic because the slogan, free love, sounds to me as being more emotional than physical. Multiple studies have been done to capture exactly how our culture has evolved on their stance of sexual tolerance over the last hundred years. What was unacceptable then seems to have now become the social norm. Well, how? Now, I hate to act like I have it all figured out, but the answer seems pretty clear to me. The problem with our culture is love. The hit song, All You Need Is Love, which was birthed out of the free love movement, says it best. If you have love, you have everything that you need. It's so simple. So why do we keep finding ourselves empty? Empty of love, empty of fulfillment, just empty. Well, shouldn't that be an indicator that we've not found the source of love in the places that we're looking for it? 
When it comes to our decisions regarding sex, the Bible can be a sort of a sore subject because it seems to tell us something that we don't want to hear. We can even come up with several reasons why the Bible should be ignored on the subject of sex. For example, in last week's sermon on Proverbs, we briefly touched on the fact that Solomon seemed to have a lot to say about avoiding inappropriate relationships with women, and yet he himself had over 300 wives and 600 concubines. And yet in today's passage, I think we'll also see that Solomon seems to be promoting sexual exclusivity, staying faithful to one partner your whole life. Now this could easily cause some to discredit Solomon as being a hypocrite, someone who didn't practice what he preached, and thus anything Solomon has to say on the subject should be ignored. However, as I said last week, the problem with this logic is that we need to be careful not to see Solomon as the source of wisdom. We need to remember that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. In other words, only God can work in irony. Only God can use a hypocrite to deliver truth. While we can discredit Solomon, we can't discredit God. And God, not Solomon, is the source of wisdom. Also, we should be able to see that Solomon, the Hugh Hefner of his day, was capable of making mistakes. And more importantly, by learning from those mistakes, should be able to pass instruction to the next generation by saying, this is what I wish I had done differently. Today we're going to closely examine Solomon's words on staying faithful. And hopefully you're able to look past Solomon's uh, hypocrisy and see God as the source of these words. Let's start by reading Proverbs 5 verses 15 through 18. Solomon says, Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now and just lift this passage to you and ask God that not only would you communicate truth to us, but God, I'm asking that you would use me to do it. God, I know you can use a crooked stick like me and hit a straight lick. And that's what I'm praying you'll do right now. We love you, Father, and just ask that you would speak to us now. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. These words serve as a euphemism. A man should drink from his own cistern is simply another way of saying, Hey man, if you want to have sex, you should get it from your wife. And by the way, I'm glad you can't see my face right now because it's pretty red. If you want fresh water, get it from your own well. In other words, the desire you have for sex isn't wrong. That desire was given to you from the Lord. And God not only gave you the desire, but because he loves you, he gave you a way to fulfill that desire. That's called the healthy way. It's also called marriage. Now this isn't a message that's new, and it certainly is consistently preached over and over in our culture. But it's also been consistently ignored. There's one more thing that God gives that should serve as a continual reminder to consider the consequences of our decisions. And ironically enough, it's where sex leads. 
Solomon asks in verse 16, Should your springs be dispersed abroad in streams of water in the streets? What is Solomon talking about? Well, look at verse 17. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Who is them? He's talking about kids. In other words, Solomon is saying, consider Rehoboam what good it is to have kids all over the place. Kids in the streets. Now forget your perspective for just a second and just consider theirs. Has there ever been a kid on this planet that wanted to grow up in an orphanage unloved by their parents? Have you ever considered the effect of spreading your seed and forcing kids to grow up without a dad? That's a clear indicator that you have the condition of our world today as the result of a love problem. An analysis of 50 separate juvenile studies on juvenile crime related that the prevalence of delinquency in broken homes was 10 to 15% higher than intact homes. They concluded that young boys who grow up in fatherless homes are three times more likely to go to jail than peers from families that are intact. Simply saying, many boys are never taught how to be men. What would the world look like if we listened to Solomon's words? Solomon says in verses 18 through 20, let, the fountain, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Again, these words from Solomon might make you laugh. What right does Solomon have to tell his son to stay faithful to his wife? Well, that's what, certainly one way to look at it. But here's another way to look at it. Why did Solomon pursue so many wives? You ever thought about that? Could it have had anything to do with the decisions of his father and his mother? Could it have anything to do with the condition of his home growing up? That maybe Solomon didn't get love that he was looking for. Maybe when David looked at Solomon, David was ashamed. We know that David pursued a married woman and had her husband killed when she got pregnant. And because of this, David avoided correcting those for whom he was responsible for when it came to sexual sin. For example, David's son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar. And because David did nothing to correct him or punish him, David's other son Absalom hunted down Amnon and killed him for it. Then, because of his lack of respect for David and how he abstained for doing anything about the rape of his sister, Absalom decided he should be king. David should no longer be king, and that led to division in the nation. Thousands dying in war. And David, even having to have his own son, Absalom, killed. So when Solomon asks, what good is it to sleep with an adulteress? Do you think he knew what he was talking about? I mean, do you think he didn't know anything about how sexual sin led to disastrous results in the lives of the next generation? Discredit him if you like, but I think Solomon knew better than most. Look what Solomon says in verses 21 through 23. 
For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for a lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Here's the issue I see when it comes to sexual sin. The reason our culture pursues ways to fulfill our own sexual appetite is because we firmly believe that this is the way to get love. Which is odd considering the conflicting messages of sex being purely physical. We don't want to obey God's word as a culture. But here's the truth. If we're having an obedience problem, what we're really having is a trust problem. We simply don't trust that God is able to fulfill our sexual appetites in marriage. That concept makes people laugh out loud. How could anybody be fulfilled sexually by only having sex with one partner their entire lives? Well, have you asked someone who did it? Or are you simply believing that in order to be sexually fulfilled, you have to pursue multiple relationships? Let me ask you this question. Do you think Hugh Hefner was sexually fulfilled living in the Playboy Mansion? If he was fulfilled, why did he seek after sleeping with and marrying so many women? <laughs> why was four wives not enough that you got to have five? And five not wives not enough that you have to have six? Wasn't it because no matter what Mr. Hefner did, he couldn't find fulfillment in sex? If we don't want to change our thinking on this, isn't that simply because we just don't trust the Lord? Aren't we saying, God, I don't trust you to keep me happy in my marriage? Christians supposedly have boring marriages and boring lives. Well, not my marriage. My marriage is alive and active. My wife is my best friend. And not only do we have our marital activities, we also share something that no one else in this world does. We're unique. We have something that is unique to our marriage that no one else can claim. Their names are Christian, Peter, and Jacob. They are the blessings that we share with no one else. They don't run around in the streets. They run around in our pasture. <laughs> Craig Funky once said to our youth group, once you have kids, you can't be a kid any longer. I think about those words often. Because it's another way of saying, you know, we seek after love. We go to all these great links looking to find love, but once we have kids... We need to recognize that not only are they doing the same thing, but we have the power to help answer that desire. Instead of trying to find love all over, we need to instead recognize that our kids need our love. This passage says that the Lord watches all our paths. Do you think that's the past that we've taken? Or do you think that's all the paths that we could take? Personally, I believe it's both. 
Scripture repeatedly speaks to how God is all-knowing, meaning he knows what's going to happen, whether we take that path or not. And if we don't trust him when he says, don't go that way, we will find out where that path leads to. Solomon says, if you go down that path, you need to know that the cords of your sin will bind you. In other words, there are always consequences for your sin, and they will entangle your life. And for those who don't hear instruction, they will walk down that path blindly. But listen, you're not the person who doesn't hear instruction. We've had the privilege of having God's Word around us, handed to us, most of us having been fed instruction our whole lives. We're hearing instruction now. The Lord is telling us that sex should be enjoyed only in the confines of marriage. That seeking sexual fulfillment outside the bounds of marriage is not going to bring us what we're looking for. If we disobey Him, it's not an obedience problem. We don't have an obedience problem. We have a trust problem. We don't do what he says because we don't trust that even though he sees it all, that he's leading us down the best path. And guess what? If we have a trust problem, we don't really have a trust problem. What we have is a love problem. Of course, we have difficulty trusting someone when we're not convinced that they love us and want what's best for us. The other day, I took my boys to our pond, and, and they each have their own life jacket so they won't drown. And Christian's a little daredevil. He runs and jumps off the side and does flips in the water. And Pete, uh, he's a little bit more cautious. He takes the ladder and eases himself into the water. Jake, though, he's still kind of young. He's three. He's still trying to find his particular style of entering the water. The other day, I was in the water looking up on him on the dock, and he was standing on the edge, and he was looking down at me, and he wanted so badly to just jump in, but he was scared. And I kept telling him, Jump, Jake. You won't drown, I promise. Just trust me. I won't let you drown. And Jake, well, he had to come to some conclusions in his mind before he could jump. Was this an obedience issue? I was saying jump, Jake, and he wasn't. Was it a trust problem? In a way. But see, Jake had to face the fact that his daddy loved him before he could jump. Because it wasn't just trust. It wasn't just obedience. It was, does my dad love me so much that he won't let me drown? You know, I'm happy to report that finally, after talking to him, he, he came to the conclusion that I must love him because he jumped off the edge. And now he jumps off the edge <laughs> even when I'm not there. The life jacket won't let him drown. He's trusting me. It just really got me thinking about my relationship with the Lord. Because so often in my life, I've heard God say these words to me. Jump, John. I won't let you drown. I promise. Just trust me. I won't let you drown. We're called to have childlike faith in the Lord. And my three-year-old trusts his daddy. This month I'll turn 36. 
and I still have trusting have trouble trusting my Heavenly Father. The reason is sometimes I struggle believing that God loves me enough to bring about the best path for me. However, in any circumstance in my life, I really need to look at those circumstances through the lens of the cross. God proved his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. If I don't trust God, it's because I'm not convinced that he loves me. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that's a two-way street? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So while we're considering this love that God has for us, and maybe we believe that, maybe the question we shouldn't be asking ourselves today is, isn't, can I trust the Lord? Maybe the question we should be asking is, can the Lord trust me? Can he trust me to jump? When he says, jump, John, you won't drown. Just trust me. I won't let you drown. The problem in our culture is that we have a love problem. Not that love isn't available for us. Just that we seek love in all the wrong places. Listen, God is love. 1 John 3.16, God is love. And because God is love, we have to know he will always lead us down the path of what is best. And if we love him, we will obey.